Jesus called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Uh, okay. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. He said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. To eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's a blessing to be back among you. Thank you for the opportunity for rest and refreshment and renewal at least one story to share with you today that I think relates and ties into the gospel. This gospel is hard, isn't it? You all are familiar with the story of the Canaanite woman. In Mark, she's called the Syrophoenician woman. That by itself is enough to give scholars some heartburn because Canaanites, by Jesus' time, really didn't exist anymore. They were kind of a legendary group, that ancient group of people that the Israelites, when they came out of the Exodus and into the Promised Land, supplanted. That was the story that sat very prominently then, and it still sits very prominently in the Jewish tradition. Mark may have it closer to the truth that she was Syrophoenician, that is, she was a woman of what we would call modern-day Syria, and she had ancestry that went back to the Phoenicians. Phoenicians gave us a number of things, including 
parts of our alphabet, you know, the word phonetics that's derived from that. They were a seafaring folk all over the Mediterranean, and some scholars suggest that they had connections with the Philistines, another group that the ancient Israelites were in conflict with in the scriptural record. What we do know is that Matthew wants us to understand her as an outsider's outsider. Matthew, we are told by scholars, was likely written for a Jewish Christian community late in the first century, living in exile in Antioch, which at the time was outside of Israel and is in also modern-day Syria. So she would have been someone that probably Matthew's audience would have thought of. Oh yes, I met somebody like that in the street the other day. And if they were faithful Jews, they would have maybe gone to the other side, maybe avoided talking or engaging with someone on the outside like that. We have that sense of her. But we still can't quite get over the fact that Jesus insults her. And that puts Jesus in a very bad light. It makes it hard for us to think about what is really being translated by this story. One helpful way to think about that, as a number of commentators suggest, is that we have moved from Jesus teaching parables to Jesus enacting parables. That in fact, this may be a teaching action, not for the Canaanite woman, but for the disciples. Jesus is in fact articulating probably what they all think and feel. What's remarkable is that the star of this story is not Jesus himself, nor the disciples, but is in fact the outsider's outsider, the Canaanite woman. As many of you know, I spent some time this summer, and Mari came with me at Camp Mokalea on the north shore of Oahu. It is a magical place. Some of you probably have been to the North Shore. Camp Mokalea has long been the diocesan camp in the Diocese of Hawaii, and I was invited to go there as a chaplain. When I was invited, I thought I was being honored to do that. And yes, that is true. I was being honored. I got room and board for the week, which was a blessing. My daughter got to go complimentary, but that was about the extent of the honor. <laughs> the only thing that could be said for us as chaplains is we got the kids as a captive audience twice a day, once in the morning and once in the evening, for about 30, 40 minutes, and most of that time was spent singing. So I didn't do a lot of teaching, and in fact, the one time that I actually led the kids through a scriptural reflection, they taught me and that was in fact the experience. I went there not to teach, but to learn. And the first couple of days or so, I felt very much like the outsider's outsider, a howly amongst a lot of locals, kids from all over the island who knew the language and spoke in the culture and who understood all of the dynamics of what it meant to live right next to the ocean. 
One of the great teachers who came down was Uncle Clem. I'll get to him in a minute. But the living parable for me was every day, in addition to my duties as chaplain, I was asked to go and help with the kayaking with the kids out in that little bay there, right behind Mokalehia. And I said, sure, and I kind of dusted off my old canoeing skills, and we would get out on the water. Some of the kids would row with gusto and really help out. Some of the kids would sort of lighten up a little bit. You know. And other kids would sit and chatter up a storm and we'd be doing all the work. It didn't matter. We had a little game where we'd go out to one buoy and then to another. And sometimes we'd have a little race, and that was all good. And there was one day, about midweek, where the currents were really strong. And everybody was saying the same thing, including the lifeguard who had gone out to put out the buoys. So we got out, and it was a lot of work to get anywhere at all. And I had two small kids with me, and they were real troopers. The boy, they were getting tired. We made it out to the first buoy. And I turned around, and I said to Katie, who was the lifeguard, and she was sitting in her own kayak, and I said, it's really rough today. Currents are really strong. And she said, yes. And she looked at him physically. He didn't say anything else. Okay, so we worked really hard to make it to the next buoy. By this time, the boys were starting to complain. We started to make our way back to shore, and we found it really hard going. We were making very little headway. And finally, Katie shouted out in a voice for everyone and God to hear, You're rowing it the wrong way! <laughs> we had, in fact, been trying to row the kayak backwards. My grandmother would say, that's the story of my life. <laughs> so we turned ourselves around in the boat, right there in the middle of the water, and got the boat turned around and going the right direction. Suddenly things got a water. That's my parable for the day. Sometimes we're rowing the boat the wrong way. Chaplains were kind of at the bottom of the teaching pile at Camp Mokalehia. We had, as I said, that captive audience moment with the kids. But the kids were often talking amongst themselves, and of course, some of their best teachers were the other campers who were with them. There were 70 of this camp. It's the largest camp they had had since the 1980s, which was really moving for me because that was the same time when I was having my mountaintop church camp experiences. Then, of course, the campers were also learning so much from the young adults who were staying with them, sleeping in the cabins with them, keeping an eye on them, keeping them safe, keeping them moving during the day, watching things. These, these I could say, kids now, right, worked really hard with the campers. Lovely, lovely people from all over the country. They were there, and they had been trained up, and they, some of them were staying there for nine weeks to work. Then there was the camp director, who was a class act in her own right, and her husband, who not only helped take care of the grounds, but provided all of the music. They were a big piece of the teaching and learning. Then there was Uncle Clem. I heard about Uncle Clem days and days and days before he actually appeared in person at the camp. And on the other side of the camp from 
where the chapel was or where the cabins were, there was a beautiful garden of all indigenous Hawaiian plants that Clem helped maintain. Finally, on Thursday, he showed up. An old beat-up car, and I had to go and meet him. And with me were about half a dozen elementary kids. And there was Uncle Clem, larger than life. Uncle Clem is a Hawaiian, and he is built like an ox. Because when he is not tending gardens in western Oahu, where he grew up, he's on Maui building stone houses. And I have no idea how old he is, but he had long, white, curly hair. And I thought, he's one of these timeless, wise people, and that's how he is known in that part of Oahu. He's one of the keepers of indigenous wisdom there. And you know these kids, right? They, they all have their devices, and they have the attention span of about maybe a minute, if you're lucky, 30 seconds most days. But Uncle Clem was the only person in camp who could hold the attention of a group of elementary students for two hours. It's no exaggeration. Because he would talk story. And he would talk story about the islands. He would talk story about his growing up. He would talk story about the plants themselves. And not only the science behind them, but also the indigenous traditions about their origins. And there was only one job for a chaplain like me to do in a situation like that. And that is just shut up, keep my mouth shut. And listen. And bask in the wisdom. Because Uncle Clem pointed out that while he was, he didn't say this, but while Uncle Clem was one of the great teachers at Camp Mokalaia, teaching above him were the plants themselves, and the trees, and the honu, the turtles swimming in the sea, and the ocean itself. They were our great teacher, our great spiritual gods. And they had so much to offer if we would just but stop. And listen. He was also terrifying. He had a piece of sugar cane with him. He told the story of growing up, and um, as you know, that's sugarcane country. And up until quite recently, the sugarcane plantations were operating. Some of you may already know this. I just learned this while I was there. The C and H sugar. The H is for Hawaii. The C is for California. And that was our kind of oceanic trade with the islands for many years. And it exploited local and indigenous labor. And Clem grew up in that cultural context and knew it well. He remembers the days when they would burn the sugarcane fields after a harvest to prepare them for the next planting. And the moment that happened, his dad would put in in a car, and he would drive him out, and Clem would run off into the burning field, and he would cut himself a piece of sugar cane, and bring it back to the car, and he'd cut it up, and he would chew it like gum. So as he's saying this, he takes a hand axe, like it's a fork, right? And starts chopping up. The kids are just like this. They're just enthralled, and absolutely fearless. I'm sort of backing up in terror. And he starts handing out these pieces of sugar cane telling us the story, how it 
taste and what it was like. It's like his candy growing up. There I was chewing sugar cane, tasting part of his story and his history. And thinking about my ancestors and his ancestors and the relationship that we had of domination, how suddenly that was all turned upside down and how good it felt and sitting at the feet of such deep wisdom, free from all that is past and fully present in the moment. Maybe what Jesus is doing in today's gospel is he is teaching his disciples, and likewise through the telling of the story, that early community in Antioch and us so many centuries later that this is the way to engage the outsider when they approach. Matthew hits it home in the ancient tradition, if you really wanted something from somebody, you always knocked or asked three times, right? The Benedictine tradition that the new novice comes to the door and you don't let them in, you don't open the door for them, you don't even acknowledge they're there until they've knocked three times. That comes out of that same root going back to ancient times. Well, if you look closely at the narrative of today's story, she calls on Jesus once and acknowledges his authority as son of David. Then she nags his disciples and annoys them. They say, Jesus, she's yelling after us. And then she comes for the third time and she bows down before Jesus, which is a profoundly humble thing to do. Again, acknowledging his authority. And even then, after the three times, he acknowledges her, but he insults her. He reaches deep into the cultural baggage that he and the disciples are carrying with them about the outsiders and the Canaanites and all of that history. And he puts it right on her. So now they're in uncharted territory, right? That was the three times. She could have gotten up and left at that point. She could have given up. She could have spat in his face. That would have been an appropriate way to be Smirch's honor for insulting her. Instead, in faith, she turns it on him. He acknowledges her faith, and they are in a completely new this is Jesus teaching his disciples to step into this new world that is brought to them by the outsiders outside. For the Jewish Christian community, by the Gentiles. For us, who is it that we need to hear here at Church of Our Savior and in the surrounding community? That is the opportunity for us to sit at the feet of the wisdom that we have not yet seen or acknowledged or welcomed into our midst. It is to step into the living peril that we are offered this day and to find there our renewal, new life, the guidance of the Spirit, and hope that the world needs. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. <laughs>
We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon. Oh, uh-huh.